0: Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice and citizenship. OK, um, on today's show, we are excited to welcome Cass Sunstein, who is the Robert Walmsley University professor at Harvard University, really one of the most eminent uh, scholars Um in the country Uh, he's the founder and director of the program on behavioral economics and public policy at harvard law school in 2018 he received the holberg prize from the government of norway sometimes described as the equivalent of the nobel prize for law and the humanities congratulations (laughs) in 2020 the world health organization appointed him as chair of its technical advisory group on behavioral insights and sciences for health From 2019 to 2012, he was Administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. And after that, he served on the President's Review Board on Intelligence and Communications Technologies and on the Pentagon's Defense Innovation Board. Professor Sunstein has testified before congressional committees on many subjects, and he has advised officials at the United Nations, the European Commission, the World Bank, and many nations on issues of law and public policy. He serves as an advisor to the Behavioral Insights team in the United Kingdom. Professor Sunstein is the author of hundreds of articles and dozens of books, including Nudge Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness, Simpler The Future of Government, The Ethics of Influence, Republic, Impeachment A Citizen's Guide, The Cost Benefit Revolution, On Freedom, Conformity. How Change Happens, which he's going to be lecturing about (laughs) at the LBJ School, and Too Much Information. He is now working on a variety of projects involving the regulatory state, sludge, defined to include paperwork and similar burdens, fake news, and freedom of speech. Okay, Cass Sunstein, welcome to Race and Democracy. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I want to talk to you first and foremost about how did you get interested in what you're interested in? You know so you've 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 been in so many different multiple fields. I think you're a great example of sustained intellectual curiosity uh, in a number of different ways, um, but both in terms of law, society, public policy, but also things like intelligence, the defense industry, um, how government works, and you've also been part of two presidential administrations. so I want to And you've also clerked for Thurgood Marshall, the iconic (laughs) Thurgood Marshall, uh, who is really the most important lawyer in terms of civil rights of the 20th century and legal mind. Uh, So I want you to share with us, how did you get your start? Thanks
1: for that. I was an English major in college, and I liked books and novels and
0: plays. And where did you go to school?
1: I went to Harvard College, and I thought, what am I going to do with my life? And the idea of an English professor seemed a little um, passive, maybe, that you know interesting get to read books and think about them but a little passive so I thought what do I do and I thought maybe I'll go to law school that seems like it doesn't commit me to anything I could do a million different things and then I got entranced by a subject that almost no one gets entranced by it's called administrative law People like it, some people, but entranced is a little much for administrative law. And what is administrative law? It's basically the study of the apparatus of government and how it is uh, uh, challenged by people who think it's doing the wrong thing and how it can be made to do better. So think of the Department of Justice – Department of Justice might be sued because it's not protecting people, let's say, from some form of discrimination, or it might be sued because it's not fulfilling its legal obligations with respect to the criminal justice system. Or the Department of Transportation might be doing something to reduce deaths on the highways, but maybe not enough. Mm -hmm. And maybe someone will sue it to say, why aren't you doing this, which the law requires you to do, that would say have 500 people next year or the Environmental Protection Agency that has a good name, right? Environmental Protection (laughs) Agency. Is it living up to its name or not? Or is it going crazy and regulating in ways that don't protect the environment but instead take jobs away? And so when I saw this the Department of Justice, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Department of Transportation, it's like my eyes got really big like a cartoon character thinking, my gosh. And so I just love the area so much. And I kind of thought, I want I want to do that. That's a world I want to work in. And it doesn't have always the glamour of constitutional law, which I'm also keenly interested in and I spend a lot of time on. But it's, it's a little newer and a little more like an open field that you can run in. Mm-hmm. And to think of it from a lawyer's perspective, you think, what does the law require? Mm -hmm. And there's a great concept called arbitrariness, which I learned about as a law student. What um, is that? It means that if the agency, the Department of Justice, say, is just acting unreasonably, it has to stop. And what might be unreasonable, I'll give an environmental example, is the Environmental Protection Agency under one or another president isn't protecting people against uh, a bad pollutant a really bad pollutant and that means people are going to die prematurely and get sick. That's arbitrary. That's a, a term from a law from the 1940s and that seemed to me kind of electrifying because I thought that's, that's a tool we can use. Ordinary citizens can use it. Lawyers can use it. And that got me interested in a whole world of thought about government, about people, about uh, human behavior, about... Uh, about rationality, and then I felt a little like uh, a high school athlete who
0: wasn't particularly good at a sport but knew that's my sport. And and that that really leads me to my next question. Uh, What made you want to do both? Because usually, and I'm at a policy school, but I'm also a historian, but I'm also a very active citizen because of my mother, and I write about that in my new book about my, my Haitian immigrant mother who um, really taught me and my brother about dignity and citizenship? And uh, uh, in New York City in the 1980s, my mom was at Mount Sinai Hospital. I was on my first picket line in elementary school. Most people choose one or the other. They're they're either uh, doers and practitioners, or they're scholars and intellectuals. You've done both in in really um, impactful and important ways. Um, And I want you, this is a segue into talking about Thurgood Marshall. Justice Marshall is such an important figure. Um, What made you want to do both? Like that you could clerk for Justice Marshall, you could teach at University of Chicago Law, you could teach at Harvard Law, but then you could work in both local government, the federal government, because the administrative work is not all you've done um, in terms of the federal government. You've consulted with with global figures, but also consulted with local figures and local community groups who, for free, <laughs> pro bono, can get you know Professor Cass Sunstein to consult and advise for free. What what made you want to do both?
1: I think it was when I was clerking for Justice Marshall. I had two jobs. One was to work at a very fancy Washington law firm. I had two job offers, which I, because I was associated with Marshall, people would say he couldn't be that terrible or Marshall wouldn't have chosen him. So I, so I, there was a firm that I really liked. It was exciting. The lawyers were amazing. They were doing free speech work. It was They were doing criminal justice work. It was kind of, a, a, it was like for a young lawyer, it was heaven. And then there was the Department of Justice, the Office of Legal Counsel, and I could These were my two places, and one would pay really well, the law firm, and would have—
0: It wasn't the Department of Justice. (laughs) No, the Department of Justice
1: wasn't going to pay me fortune. But the Department of Justice, when I talked to them about their work, it was an office called the Office of Legal Counsel, which resolves conflicts between parts of the government on law. So if the— Department of State disagrees with the Department of Defense on some legal issue involving mm-hmm. national security that office resolves it or if the president needs legal advice about whether he can do something involving you know freedom of religion or involving war and peace that's the office that is is like ground zero and i thought You know, this is a chance to, if I could, to try to help uh, the rule of law and the forces that seem to me to be on the side of uh, dignity, your term. And that would be better even than the exciting law firm, which was was like a lawyer's heaven. And once I worked at that office in the Justice Department, I developed a taste for it. I just loved it so much. Every day was amazing that I would get to work on something involving uh, labor unions or something involving— um, what universities actually could disclose in classes where people from foreign countries might be. So there's both a the free speech issue and national security issue. And I remember a meeting of really important people, and I was in my 20s, and I expressed a view about the law, and I saw them looking at each other, and they're saying, he's a kid, me. He, he doesn't doesn't belong here. He's too young and kind of pathetic. But then they thought he's he's the Department of Justice, so we can't exactly ignore him. <laughs> and I thought that was you know that was amazing to be able to speak for freedom of speech in that setting, and that gave me a taste for it. And then uh, the universities came around and. We're, we're looking for potential job candidates, and I had no idea that anyone would actually hire me. It's not that easy, and uh, you know there are a lot of people, and somehow I clicked with the University of Chicago, I think because they were um, high energy, and, and me too, and even though I maybe didn't have any ideas, I did have uh, itchy
0: fingers, so I'd probably write something. What was the most important thing that you learned from Justice Marshall? In terms of clerking for Justice Marshall, both in a legal sense, but also in a personal sense, like listening to him, being around him, because that's such, such an extraordinary privilege and opportunity to, to, to have clerked for Thurgood Marshall.
1: To focus on the human consequences of law. So that there were a bunch of justices and they were all, you know, very impressive in their way. But he was the one who would focus on the human consequences every time. I love that phrase, the human consequences of the law. I love that. That, that's, That's him. And there would be cases, you know, that to the other justices and to the law clerks, they were paper. And they were really interesting paper. We would read a lot of paper about you know, some conflict between someone and someone else, and for him, they they just weren't paper; they were human beings. So it's, it's it was a long time ago. So I'll actually disclose a little story for you. There was a case where um, someone in Texas actually wanted uh, a lawyer to be present when he was being interviewed by a psychiatrist. This is someone who was on uh, going to be executed, and he said he had a right to have a lawyer present when he was being. Um, uh, interviewed to see if it was psychopathic some term like that and uh, all of the justices thought this is kind of ridiculous it's a doctor thing we don't need a lawyer there and Marshall said let me look at the transcript I want to see what the doctor said Mm And uh, for everyone else, it was paper. For him, it was a human interaction and a person whose life was literally on the line and a person, a doctor, who was involved. He wanted to know what's going on here. And he read the transcript. That's unusual for a justice to go into that level of detail. And then he said to us, "I, I think I understand that doctor. I bet he said that exact same thing a lot of times, and what he's saying about this person who's about to be executed is not individualized to that person, mm-hmm. I bet he says it about everybody. Mm-hmm. And he said, go do some research. And we clerks did the research, and he nailed it. He had it exactly right, that there was a doctor called Dr. Death in Texas mm-hmm. because he always said they were, had a psychopathic personality, something like that, psychotic, some term like that. And once the other justices saw the human reality mm-hmm. behind the paper, they agreed with Marshall and thought, he needs a lawyer present. This is not a medical thing, really. It's a it's a person who's trying to help the prosecutor execute someone. And in death penalty cases, Marshall was particularly attuned to what was humanly behind everything, mm-hmm. but that was true in every case, and I've tried never to lose sight of
0: that. Oh, that's extraordinary. Um, I want to talk to you about Barack Obama and the Obama administration. Um, I've written extensively about the president, including in my new book, The Third Reconstruction. You've worked for the president um, uh Uh, you've had interactions with him even before he was president. I mean, so I want to I want to talk to you about your history with him personally. Um, Where do you how do you think about those years now, especially in 2022? Um, And. That's the start. And then I'm going to t- dive deep into, you know, sort of Nudge and really the work you did, because I, I love the office title, <laughs> the the Administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. Um, and I've read Nudge, so I want to talk to you about Nudge as well. So um, first, you know, you know, how did you meet or ever hear about Obama? You you both have Chicago roots, but you also have Cambridge roots together, too. Both of you are Harvard Law grads, but him from class of um, 1991, his wife, Michelle Obama, class of 1988. Um, So let's talk about that. Yeah. So I remember as if it
1: was like five minutes ago, um, I was standing with a University of Chicago law professor on the second floor of the law library. His name was and is Michael McConnell. He's very conservative. He was head of the hiring committee at Chicago. He said, there's a Harvard student we should hire. He's incredible. He's editing my article. He's brilliant. And we should hire him. And I said, that's interesting. And usually you don't hire someone right out of law school. So I said, uh, amazing. And he said, yeah, he's, he's phenomenal. And I said, what's his name? And he said, it's, it's an unusual name, Barack Obama and that was the first time I heard the name, and then he was hired at the University of Chicago. He didn't want to be a full-time professor. That was a route available to him. He had a, a broader sense of his future than just being a law professor, but I remember thinking when I first met him and he became a friend that he really was the sort of person who should become president, and I thought that even though he wasn't a political person at the time, he had a, a kind of combination of judgment and speed of mind, which I associated with a, a good leader. So he was wise and he was quick. So a lot of professors, at least the ones I know, they're 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 quick, but they're not that wise. And, and uh, some of the older ones maybe are wise, but not that quick. And. Uh, uh, Obama was both. He was also um, – he had a kind of calm, still center that I'd never seen before or since. Something in – it's like in his – in the middle of his body, there isn't a lot of – there isn't any, anything frantic. Mm-hmm. And I okay. thought, that that's a leader. And he, he seemed – you know, like he'd be a great law professor, but he kind of didn't didn't want to do that. And the prospect of any one of us becoming president seems very uh, unlikely. And I remember before his great speech at the Democratic Convention, talking to him, and he was nervous. I was really nervous, because I thought my friend, who's a law professor, is going to speak to the whole country, and who can do that? And uh, I remember I was watching all by myself in my apartment, and a little um, sweaty as he was starting because I thought, you know, law professor, democratic convention, that's not a good mix. And then he completely knocked it out of the park, of course, and that fit with the sort of person he was, that he could basically, you know, uh, both solve a really hard problem and speak to people in a way that would meet them where they were and also show a kind of empathetic recognition of uh, people who are in very different situations.
0: And how did you come to work in the administration then?
1: So I worked on the campaign,
0: and uh,
1: I had known him, and he basically, after he was elected, wanted to know what people who he thought were potentially not disgraceful, would, <laughs> what would they want to do? And, uh, and he asked me what I wanted to do, and uh, he had some ideas for me that were not what
0: I wanted to do. What were some of those ideas?
1: Um, One possibility was I would be a a lawyer in the White House focusing on some of the really hard questions of the day, like what are we going to do about Guantanamo? uh, What's the right conception of civil rights and civil liberties Mm -hmm. in the period after President Bush, where there was a lot of new thinking Mm -hmm. going on? And a kind of a lawyer with a special repertoire of uh, assorted difficult problems. I think the title might have been Deputy White House Counsel. Mm-hmm. And that, that was a possible job. And um, Why didn't
0: you want to do that?
1: Well, there were a couple things that happened. One was I asked some wise people who'd worked in the government before about what government job, if I was lucky enough to get one, I should seek. And the, the advice I got from some people was take a job where you have line authority, meaning a job where you're not. Uh, like an advisor or a a person who's around the president, Mm -hmm. but where you actually have authority to make things happen. Mm. So the risk of being an advisor is that um, every day could be a disappointment or could involve a kind of Uh, staring at the window and saying, let me in, please, sir. Whereas if you have line authority, and I'll explain that in a minute, you have a real job where you're not staring at any window because people have to have you in or because something won't happen unless you think it should happen. So like the uh, Secretary of State has line authority. The advisors to the Secretary of State don't the um, attorney general has line authority the many people who work in the white house with completely amazing jobs they don't they might have incredibly important jobs but it's a little less predictable so I was advised and there so there's there's that advice I got from people plus when I worked under president carter and president reagan when I was a kid lawyer Uh, There was created this obscure office, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, which I thought was um, amazing, both because the people there are really strong and because the opportunity to do good, even in a month, felt to me to be higher than almost any other job I could imagine. And
0: before I ask you what that office specifically does, when did you work for President Carter? So
1: after I worked for President... Uh, not president, he would have been a good president, Justice Thurgood Marshall, I, I went to take that job in the Justice Department, which was under President Carter, and I and I stayed under Reagan. So I was there for a very intense year between the Carter and Reagan transition. Oh, wow. And while I was uh, not a— I didn't vote for Reagan, the person who— ran the office, the Office of Legal Counsel, under Reagan, named Ted Olson, who, thank goodness, is still very much with us, is a person of immense integrity and um, kindness. And so, for him to be Reagan's assistant attorney general was a blessing to the staff. Oh. He's, he remains a very good friend. So, so, so I worked in that office during transition and learned a lot. Reagan Fortified the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, and I can talk a little bit about that. But that had been my dream job for uh, more years than uh, I can count.
0: And so what does the Office of Regulatory Affairs um, you know do? Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs?:
1: It sounds kind of ominous, doesn't it? A little boring. Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. So the coolest thing the office does is there are these rules that come from the federal government. They might involve disability. They might involve prisons. They might involve the Affordable Care Act they might involve agriculture they might involve immigration all those rules don't become rules unless the office of information and regulatory affairs gives a check mark so so they clear all the rules all the important ones that come from the entire executive branch and that means in the space right now under review this is public at the office of information and regulatory affairs it's probably somewhere between 100 and 200 and that's this month and next month there'll be another group and the office has the authority this is the line authority idea to say no that's not one, that one's not going to become a rule which might be because it doesn't make any sense or more likely is because there's a way to make it better so it might be a rule involving, let's say, uh, air pollution, which maybe doesn't pay attention to issues in environmental justice, and maybe it can be reoriented, so it does. And the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs can say to the head of a, a a department, uh, what would you think about reorientating this way? Mm. And the head of the department can say, I think that's a terrible idea. Oh, okay. and, and then the Office of Information Regulatory Affairs will say, I, I think it's a good idea. Let's chat. And there can be um, a very cooperative or very... Um, um, you know, contentious discussions about how to make it right. But frequently I expected, and that was my experience, there's substantive discussions. Mm -hmm. Like if the Office of Information Regulatory Affairs says you can protect air quality better this way
0: Mm.
1: because of the science, then we'll have a nice discussion of the science. Mm -hmm. I, I expected. And I actually had lunch with President Bush's head of the Office of Information Regulatory Affairs after Obama had been elected president mm-hmm. at the White House. And I asked her about the job. And as she described it, I thought this is this is the best job in Washington.
0: So tell me about your years there and what do you feel you did? I mean, you've written about this too, but tell, tell me like what, what, how was it on a day-to-day and what do you feel the biggest accomplishments were? Because in a way, what you described, I'm thinking of it through an equity lens. There's a lot of good that you can do in an office like that. And probably good that's in a very subtle way too, right? Good that has sort of far-reaching consequences, but not might not be the one that captures the headlines for either good or ill. So it's not going to be a lightning rod. In a way, that's kind of how change happens um, in that sense. Yeah.
1: Okay. So there are two, two kinds of things you can do. Mm-hmm. One thing you can do is create a kind of structural change mm-hmm. that will, it is hoped, endure, and, and I'll give some examples. That's a little abstract. And the other thing is particular rules you can uh, either participate in or you can spur or in some cases you can help create. Um, it's a team, so no one person.
0: And how many people work for this office?
1: About fifty. Wow! So it's a small office with about fifty, but you're working with the executive office of the president every day. And now we're talking hundreds, and you're working with cabinet departments. So now you're talking, you know, thousands potentially of people.
0: And how many years did you? Were you? I was
1: of- there four years. So I was confirmed in September of president's first year, but I was working there as a senior counselor mm-hmm. for the first nine months, so I had a, a, a not-unrelated role, let's mm-hmm. say, and then I left toward the end of the, the first term. Um, I'd say, the will talk about the structural things first. Yeah. So you used the word dignity. Mm-hmm. The word hu- human dignity had never been called out in an executive order Mm -hmm. on, I think, anything. But I know that it has never been used in an executive order on regulation. And the word regulation puts some people to sleep. But keep in mind, we're talking about healthcare. We're talking about immigration. We're talking about um civil rights we're talking about education we're talking about everything under the sun mm-hmm. is human dignity a matter of irrelevance is it something that's part of a cost benefit apparatus or does it have some separate status mm-hmm. and actually with president obama's personal imprimatur the word dignity got put in an executive order called 13563 and it's not just an abstraction it it is was used When I was there on rules trying to protect prisoners against being raped, Mm. there's a Prison Rape Elimination Act rule for which dignity was uh, uh, a motivator, uh, rules involving— protection of disabled people Mm -hmm. against discrimination of multiple kinds for issues involving race and gender and sexual orientation Mm -hmm. discrimination. The idea of dignity is now kind of baked into the DNA of the executive branch. And so that I felt was... uh, a step forward. Uh, You can find, uh, this may sound a little silly, but you can find, there's a website called reginfo.gov where you can find every regulation under review at the Office of Information Regulatory Affairs. If you are a group that's keenly interested in, let's say, what's going on with healthcare, what's Mm -hmm. the government maybe going to do, you can see it and you can participate. So public participation is also baked into the Obama Regulatory regulatory apparatus and the executive order that orients it. And that website is actually uh, a living and breathing example of that. People are using it. In terms of particular things we did, the one that I have a hard time not crying when I talk about, and I'm going to try to get through it (laughs) without not crying, is um, something which in the deepest recesses of my heart means the most, though it's not the biggest, And it's a rule involving poor kids who are entitled to free school meals Mm -hmm. who haven't been getting what they have a legal right to. Mm. Now, these are kids which may be homeless kids. Mm -hmm. They may be runaway kids. They may be migrant kids. They may be just poor kids who are really struggling and their families – Uh, don't have any money, and the meals are nutritious and they're great, and they change people's lives, Mm -hmm. and they relieve the economic burden on the family. Uh, The rule uh, is uh, under the general rubric of direct certification, which means that if the kids are eligible, the school districts can say, you're in. You don't have to apply. Mm. You're in. And as of a recent count... Fifteen million kids in the United States are getting breakfast and lunch for free under the direct certification program. And that uh, is a statistic, 15 million. Mm -hmm. But if we had like a photograph of 12 of them, man, right? Right. And we did a little rule, which was uh, an interim final rule, a technical term. It's still on the books uh, for uh, homeless and runaway kids. And a quarter of a million of them are getting um, free school meals. And that one, uh, that, that was a good day. Um, there are others that are, are uh, in some ways more massive – like rules involving automobile safety. So you may notice that cars these days, there's a camera in the car. So if you see in back, it's called the rear visibility rule. This was much debated. It saves small people from getting run over.
0: Absolutely. I have one of them in my car.
1: There we go. And all cars in the United States have to have them. And that rule is something I really cared about, because even if the number of parents who kill their kids in that way isn't high for everyone it's about the worst tragedy you can imagine and this camera should avert that mm-hmm. and it also makes driving easier for people mm-hmm. it's a, it's it's and the companies which at at some point were complaining about it i think they're very glad they have the cameras in the cars
0: oh absolutely I, I wanna ask you, because this has been great conversation about the way in which your own um, activism, sort of as a scholar, but also a public citizen, has really been about change and transformation. W- what do you think now, because we're in 2022, about the Obama years? Because in so many ways, you, you discussed uh, uh, knowing the president and the 2004 speech, and that speech was so extraordinary No red states, no blue states, um, which catapults him to 2008 and the presidency. America is a place where all things are possible. Um, And then we have the two administrations, which by and large are very, very successful. Uh, But at the same time, the follow-up is going to be Trump. Um, And the follow-up is really a a huge, huge um, just partisanship and divisions Uh, centered, I think, around race um, in this country, but certainly class and intersectional divisions. But what do you think of the Obama administration with the the perspective of time um, in terms of what what the president was able to do, but also some of the things he was unable to do, which now we're all grappling with. Certainly the Biden-Harris administration is grappling with but really, all of us as just Americans in the world, in a way, are grappling with. Okay,
1: great. Let me uh, try to be objective. And I should say, as you were talking, I was thinking that I grew up in Boston when the Boston Celtics had Bill Russell, the greatest winner in the history of sports. Absolutely. Bob Cousy, at the time, the greatest passer in the history of basketball. The immortal John Havlicek. Mm-hmm. I'm. I'm. I'm not delaying. This isn't a filibuster. Casey Jones, the greatest defensive guard ever. Sam Jones, the greatest clutch shooter ever. Mm. And uh, um, if I were asked, what do you think of the Boston Celtics at that time, I would not be objective. <laughs>
0: I'm a Knicks fan, so I I I would dispute Cass's about the greatest, you know. But but still, yeah.
1: Uh, okay, so the Knicks are great also, and uh, uh, okay, <laughs> so I think of the Team Obama, I feel a little bit in my loyalty as I do to Boston Celtics, Celtics yeah. of the Russell Cousy, Havlicek, Jones years. But let's uh, talk about the things that. Uh, I think, in retrospect, look amazing. The country was in the worst economic situation since the Great Depression. There were a zillion choices President Obama had to make in those first years, Mm -hmm. and I think he nailed every single one, and we don't see now how close we were on a precipice Mm -hmm. to Economic catastrophe. Places were closed over all over Washington. When I got there, the stores were all closed. Mm-hmm. They were shut down. The uh, unemployment rate was uh, jumping, the uh, economic growth rate was plummeting. We have some problems now. There, the, the specter of uh, national and even international economic collapse was looming. And I saw in real time the president making – it's 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 stunning to see decision on a Tuesday, I'm going to save the car companies. Decision on Wednesday, we're going to go for Dodd-Frank. Decision on a Thursday, that's the big financial regulatory yeah, package. Absolutely. Decision, we're going to go for this – the biggest package we can get for a stimulus. That's what we're going to do right now. Yeah. And to see him – you know, he's very deliberate, mm-hmm. but to see him making – decisions that uh, I think nailed it, given the political constraints. Mm -hmm. And uh, we think of it now as a challenging time. Mm -hmm. We don't think of it as the country almost fell apart. Oh, I lived through those times. I think the country almost fell apart. Yeah. And and and, and so he did that. Then he did the most important, even— to today, with all props to President Biden. He did the imp- most important social legislation since the 1960s. That's the Affordable Care, Care Act. Act yeah. It's the biggest deal since the 1960s. And he did the biggest regulatory reform, that's Dodd-Frank, since the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And he had the most uh, ambitious and um, uh, impactful Environmental record Mm -hmm. of any president in history. The only rival actually he has is improbably Nixon, Mm -hmm. who got the legislation passed. But in terms of what was actually achieved, Obama's the uh, Environmental Prize winner. And that doesn't even include the elimination of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, Mm -hmm. uh, the prison rape elimination stuff. Um, so, so things done on sex equality, a um, 1,001 things done by the Department of Agriculture, by the Department of Transportation. And so the, the impact of that presidency in terms of what the country looked like after it is uh, it's very hard to come up with a super- superlative that's sufficient.
0: What makes you think the country was so vulnerable then to Trump then? You know, because I, I have certain ideas I'd love to talk with you about it, but what makes you do, you, do you think that retrospectively retrospectively, there were things President Obama left on the floor, like things like um, student loans uh, and student loan debt, things like free community college, things like um, investments in mid-America, mid, uh, mid uh, middle America. When you think about President Obama won Indiana, he lost Missouri by 8,000 votes. It seemed like he was gonna be, really, some people compared him to a liberal Reagan. Uh, I thought of him more as an Eisenhower figure, you know, a figure who under an old Congress would have been an extraordinarily popular figure who co-opted aspects of the other side. Um, what What makes you think, why were we so vulnerable? Because I, I don't really dispute what you just said, although I would say that there's There were a lot more people who I think could have been invested in in real time, including when we think about the Troubled Asset Relief Program. And there was $400 billion left in that that could have been invested and saved people's mortgages. I personally think we should have taken over the banks to help people um, with their mortgages. I think we should have um, uh, zeroed out uh, interest rates on student loans. There were so many different things that people proposed that really didn't get up to the high level of you and the White the White House. I'd probably say the person who got to the highest was Elizabeth Warren, who then wasn't uh, approved to be head of the Credit Protection Financial Bureau and became senator out of Massachusetts. Um, so why why what did we leave on the table that made I think actually good people susceptible to Trump? Because some of one of the things the data has shown us there are both two-time and one-time white Obama voters who then voted for Trump. So we can't, our argument can't be that they're all racist because some of them voted two times or one time for Obama. And I'm not here to tell people that if you voted for Obama, somehow you're not a racist, but I'm just saying, come on. If you, you know, they're, they're not, Trump, the 74 million who vote for Trump are not all racist. They're not all white supremacists. Certainly, some have said they are, and I'll take them at their words, the ones who say that. But not all of them are. So I'm saying, what what made people so vulnerable to somebody, let's say, a demagogic figure like donald j. trump?
1: it's a It's a fantastic question, and I only have uh, hunches. I'll give you one hunch, and it's it's actually a database hunch. so it's not uh, completely speculative. Um, there's work on what separates people politically, the right and the left, um, by Jonathan Haidt, a professor at NYU, that says that liberals and conservatives both care about um, fairness and, and about harm. Now, they have different understandings of fairness and harm, but just let's work with that saying that if someone you know, punches someone in the face or cheats – Both liberals and conservatives are going to think something bad has happened. Uh, Conservatives are very attuned to three things that the left is not attuned to. One is authority, another is loyalty, and a third is purity. Take loyalty. Uh, The flag, do you wear a pin? Do you talk about the founders with reverence? Do you talk about your community as something that you wouldn't betray no matter what? Um, authority, do you think that being respectful of your parents, being respect, respectful of your traditions, do you give them a kind of authority? Purity, do you get disgusted by stuff? And Obviously, there's a relationship between authority, purity, and loyalty and religious commitments mm-hmm. of a certain kind, but they're not the same. And if you test what people's moral values are—I'm going to get to Trump in a uh, moment—the left is left a little cold by authority, purity, and loyalty compared to conservatives, and that is a systematic thing. Like if you ask people on the left how much would you have to be paid to burn the American flag, they'll say, how much have you got? The right will say, you're kidding. I'm not going to burn the American flag. There's no amount you can pay me. Um, If you ask people on the left how much you have to be paid to slap your dad, the left will say, well, a million dollars, sure. My dad will understand. The right will be more likely to say, I'm not going to slap my father. You're kidding, right? There's no amount. Okay, now here's where things get interesting. Um, If you track the rhetoric and moral stuff of presidential candidates in recent years, um, Obama was pretty good on tradition, authority, on, on authority, purity, and loyalty. For a Democrat, he was pretty good. He was, the, he was the best of the Democrats. You know who was the worst of the Democrats? Secretary Clinton. She just didn't strike those themes. Of the Republicans, you know who was the best? Number one, the champ? Trump. Authority, purity, loyalty. Trump was all over those things. He didn't know the research, but he was all over those things. Clinton was the weakest Democratic candidate in on these issues. Trump was the strongest Republican candidate on these issues. Obama was a good Democratic candidate on these issues, which is, I think, one reason that conservatives thought he's kind of in some ways one of us. He might want the Affordable Care Act, but he wears a, a pin— He seems, you know, they might be racist and they might think he's, you know, something unfamiliar, but he talks in ways that we get and that resonate. And the voting suggests that. The voters that went for Trump and not for Clinton were the people who are the authority loyalty purity people. And uh, that is a significant part of the picture. Now, we don't have the data on Biden versus Trump, mm-hmm. but I'd be willing to predict with a lot of confidence that Biden's a lot better, a lot more like Obama on these moral foundations. And that that's, I think, part of it. I, I'm a big admirer of Secretary Clinton, mm-hmm. and I don't mean to... Uh, you know, think, say anything negative about her, but it's a matter of political um, uh, self-interest. The, her her rhetoric was not as convincing, let's say, to people. Now, I think this isn't getting directly at your question. Is it that there's something that Obama did that didn't excite people about Democrats, and uh, the, didn't have coattails? Didn't have coattails, and maybe, maybe. Yeah.
0: And, and, you know, so, so we're 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 closing and I I, I want to talk about um, before asking you about some books you're reading, what books are you reading now? Um, where do you think we are today in terms of uh, when I think about America in 2022, I'm 50 years old and it's a much different country than the one I grew up in, um, uh, in some ways better, in some ways in some ways worse. You know, I think. Um, uh, The career of somebody like President Obama um, has been extraordinary, an extraordinary example for so many young black people and people of all colors that I couldn't have imagined when I was in school. You know, I couldn't have imagined a black president. And at the same time, when I look at Black Lives Matter, mass incarceration, um, George Floyd, I couldn't have imagined in certain ways either. Um, uh, So... Where do you think we are? You know, I've argued that we're in a third Reconstruction. So much of what's going on with um, allegations of voter fraud, the January 6th uprising uh, is connected to the first Reconstruction, which is the decades after the Civil War and this effort at multiracial democracy. Um, That being said, we also are in an era of redemptionism, you know, the lost cause, this idea that uh, America is really this white ethno-nationalist state. You know, President Trump had Steve Bannon and these, these, these rhetorical czars who otherize everything and everyone, right? So unless you're from, let's say, Scandinavia or, or, or somewhere that they find you light enough to be an American, um, they don't want you around. And that rhetoric has become normalized. And even talking about aspects of American history, you, you clerked for Thurgood Marshall um, they're going to say that's critical race theory and this critical race theory hoax against th- truth teaching. Where do you think we are just as as a democracy? Because so much of your work, the way I read it, is um, in in defense of democracy and trying to expand democracy for all citizens of all backgrounds, you know, uh, everywhere, really in a global scope, not just local or federal. Where do you think we're, we are today? We, where, where are we headed
1: I love everything you said. I think in some ways where we are is amazing and inspiring and incredible. So if we look at 40 years ago and ask a bunch of questions about what our society would be like 40 years hence, and we see, you know, uh, uh, forms of equality and recognition of dignity Mm – that 40 years ago would have seemed like a dream Mm -hmm. and you can take your pick with respect to an issue. Congress enacted just because we've discussed this uh, Prison Rape Elimination Act. Mm -hmm. Um, Same-sex marriage is now the law of the land. Uh, The idea of Black Lives Matter for many people who maybe would have been uninterested in civil rights issues Mm -hmm. or... Skeptical, that idea is a rallying cry that connects with what they care most about, and that is playing a role on issues that involve even the apparatus of, you know, uh, benefits programs mm-hmm. that have nothing to do with criminal justice, mm-hmm. certainly not directly. But the idea of Black Lives Matter as being about human dignity and history. And not just about um, an event or a series of events, but something that is uh, um, uh, there. There's an English word for it exactly. Maybe there's a German word uh, that we have to we have to fix that. Mm-hmm. And that's there's both wide recognition of that, and there's action and responsive to that. Mm-hmm. In response to that, in you know, diverse places in all in, in states where you wouldn't think that would be happening. Mm-hmm. It's happening. And sometimes it's not crowed about because people don't want to stir, but they do want to help. So that's fantastic um, and not predictable from 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think you're right that there's a danger in where we are now mm-hmm. that is also extremely surprising that uh, there's a normalization as you say of things that are by my lights um, uh, grotesque and and that that doesn't speak for the better angels of our nature Mm -hmm. across real political divisions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there, I'll tell you a story. Uh, There's a member of the U.S. Senate Mm -hmm. who's no longer in the U.S. Senate, who I met with in my first month in the Obama administration, a Republican, and he is, you know, very Republican, not a little Republican. He's not like a moderate, and he's not in the Senate anymore, and he said to me behind closed doors, and I'll say this because he's not there anymore, he he said, Cass, um, I'm conservative, Said I'm I'm very conservative. He said with some puzzlement. He said I'm, I'm really conservative, but then he said some of my colleagues they're crazy. And this is someone who spent much of his career as being on the very much on the right. Mm-hmm. And behind closed doors, he was saying, what is happening to my party? Mm-hmm. And this was, you know, this was long before uh, January sixth. Yeah. yeah.
0: All right. So my final question is, what are you reading right now for, and you can give me three books, but for solace, for inspiration, for, you know, just what do what you, you know, for, for the future? Yeah. What are you, what are you reading?
1: I'm reading a book by a Stanford historian called, I think it's the second creation, Jonathan Gienapp. Uh, which is about how the Constitution became the Constitution. And the idea in the book, which I found stunning, meaning new, which is a little embarrassing because I do constitutional law, is that the original conception of the Constitution was as a kind of um, tentative first crack at a system of governance where the text wasn't the whole thing. We, the people, were going to be kind of figuring it out. Mm -hmm. And that after the founders did their work, in the next decade plus, it got really solidified and congealed into something that was much different from what it was supposed to be. And the book is actually democratic with a small D. I have no idea what the author's politics no, it's are. And it says that we've we've lost sight of what the actual historical conception of the Constitution was. And it puts the idea of originalism, you know, we go back to the – it makes it look historically bizarre. Yeah. And that's funny because the originalists seek to be historically not bizarre. Yes, and yes. this book – so I find that – Uh, a completely inspiring book and great. Um, uh, For fun, I'm reading a book called The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Something, by Taylor Jenkins Reid, oh, really? who is a really good novelist. She also wrote Daisy Jones and the Six, which is about a rock group kind of like Fleetwood Mac, yeah. and the law professor isn't supposed to be that excited about books that are kind of about Fleetwood Mac, oh, that's great. but I'm really excited about that book. And The Seven Husbands of Evelyn, Black, the last name, it's, it's great, and I'm about three-quarters of the way done. I'm also rereading, uh, basically for my classes and my academic scribbling, uh, a book called Scarcity, which is a behavioral science book about cognitive scarcity. And it's an argument that each of us has limited bandwidth. And the kind of punch of the book is if you're poor or hungry or sick or old, you're Bandwidth will be really limited and that means you're because if you're poor, you're trying to get through the day and if you're sick, you're trying to get not sick and then your ability to navigate life is severely compromised and that means a lot of the stuff that private and public institutions demand of people who are poor or old or sick or struggling in one or another way, they're extremely terrible, those things, because if you are limited in your capacity to do other things than handle your family situation than to ask you to go 10 blocks away or two miles away to get government help is effectively to create a wall between you and the help and uh, tear down that wall, as Ronald Reagan said.
0: Wow, that's great. Thank you for those recommendations. I'm actually eager to read those. Um, We've been talking with Cass Sunstein, who's the Robert Walmsley University professor at Harvard University. Um, He's worked for the Carter, Obama, Biden administrations. Um, He was the head of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs um, and has done so many other things Uh, Professor Sunstein is the author of hundreds of articles and dozens of books. My favorite is Nudge, um, but there's also How Change Happens, which you're going to be speaking about. So, um, Cass, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Great pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.